three, two, one. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Jason Belcher. I'm a small business owner, a military veteran, proud Kentucky Democrat, and we're going to kick off our 2022 show of Kentucky Caliber this year with a survey of the landscape of 2022. And I think really in order for us to do that, we really need to start by trying to make some sense out of the things that have happened to us in the last couple of years. You know, we've all been through a lot since 2020 and 2021. The pandemic has brought about a number of significant changes to our lives, our society, and our country and the world. We've all been through it. Most of us know someone who's been sick with COVID or unfortunately passed away. Lives have been disrupted. Businesses have been disrupted. So the first place we're going to start is by just talking about the impact of the pandemic and what that means for 2022 and going forward. And the, the natural place to start is with vaccines. You know, here in Kentucky, about 54% of the total population has been vaccinated, and I, I'm making this uh, in January of, of 2022. About, that's about 70% of those who are eligible for vaccination. So in other words, of those who are old enough to get the vaccine, about 70% have gotten it so far. And rather than get into a discussion about whether or not there should be 80 or 90%, I just think we should be thankful that we have vaccines. Remember 2020 when COVID first hit and we were thinking, there might not be a vaccine for this for, for years and years, if ever. But we got there a lot faster, thanks to modern science. The flu pandemic of 1918, which killed over 50 million people globally, more than World War I, which it followed, by the way, there wasn't a vaccine for that virus, for that flu virus, until 1945. 1945 is when the first influenza vaccine was commercially licensed for the American public. That's 27 years after the pandemic started. 27 years. By contrast, we got a vaccine for COVID in less than two years. That's an amazing difference. It's astonishing. And that speed has made some people suspicious, even though it shouldn't. And, and here's why. You know, critics have complained about a lot of things, but they've, they've mainly said, well, the COVID vaccine is suspicious because it happened so fast and is unlike any of the previous vaccines that we've ever seen. Well, that's because the COVID vaccine uses new technology. They're new, so why should they look like older vaccines? Why should they be like previous versions? They, they shouldn't. The new vaccines use messenger RNA. That, that's not some scary new concept. mRNA has been around for some time. But using it to create a viable vaccine is something that's primarily come about in the past 30 or so years. You know, according to the journal Nature, mRNA research for medical use has been ongoing since at least about 1978. And what is mRNA? We don't have to have a, a science class or a biology class to teach the, to just get through the basics. It means messenger RNA. RNA is a single-stranded molecule as opposed to the famous, you know, double helix of DNA that has that has two strands. RNA only has one. It it leaves the the cell's nucleus, which is the control center of the cell. It goes out into the cytoplasm, which is the rest of the stuff around the nucleus in the cell, and it gives the cell's instructions on how to make proteins. That's, that's it. That's what it does. It doesn't change your DNA because it can't. Saying that messenger, a messenger RNA 
or a messenger RNA vaccine causes some kind of genetic mutations. That's like saying you're going to get radiation poisoning from eating a potato you microwaved. People, remember when people used to be afraid, those of us who can remember when microwaves first came out, remember people were afraid of microwaves because it's going to give you radiation poisoning or mutations? doesn't happen. can't happen. So it's not an actual threat. But people were afraid of it. And I hope the same, the same way this, this irrational fear of the vaccines will pass. But anyway, what mRNA does do is it gives your cells instructions on how to make proteins. For example, the S-shaped protein structure found on the outer part of the coronavirus. It's called corona, by the way, because it's, if you look at it under a microscope, it's crown-shaped. And there are little spikes on the edge of it, just like, you, just like the crown a king or queen would put on. Under magnification, that's what corona looks like. It's, it's crown-shaped with little spikes, so that's what they call it uh, a coronavirus, because corona is another word for crown. Anyway, so mRNA vaccine just teaches your cells how to make that one specific protein. That causes your immune system to produce antibodies, which means... The vaccine teaches your immune system how to make antibodies for COVID-19 without actually having to get infected from the virus itself. Just think of it as uh, an FBI's most wanted. What the vaccine does is it tells your immune system to put up a big picture of COVID-19 in its headquarters, and it's the most wanted. Like, you know, the FBI puts up a picture of criminals who are, who are the most wanted. Well, this teaches your immune system to put up a picture of COVID. And when they see that, when they run into him on the street or in your body somewhere else, Bam! It triggers an immune response and they go get him, just like the cops would go get a bad guy. Same thing. In 2020, when COVID first hit, the virus that caused it was quickly sequenced, and that genetic sequence was shared by researchers around the world. Back in 1918, you know, scientific research moved at the speed of the written word in the printing press. But in 2020, vital knowledge about this disease moved at the speed of light through the Internet. That means researchers could share information about it quickly, anywhere on the, in the world. And so that enabled researchers to start figuring out what it was, how it caused illness, and most importantly, how to try to stop it. Now, there's still a, much more that's unknown than is known about this particular disease. But we've learned a lot in just the past three years through intensive study. And the data that we have proves that vaccines work. They're not 100% effective. Nothing is. Nothing ever will be. Think of it as a seatbelt. You can still die in a car crash with your seatbelt on, but wearing one really improves your odds of survival. So we should be thankful, first of all, whenever we start trying to, to survey the, the landscape of 2022 and the past couple of years, the first thing we should do is be thankful that we have a vaccine and that we're able to distribute it. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in the distribution. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to still to try to convince people who haven't taken the vaccine to get one. The Supreme Court has recently ruled that the Occupational Health and Hate Safety and Health Administration, pardon me, cannot mandate that employers give a vaccine with the exception of healthcare workers. And even though I, I disagree with that ruling, we're a nation of laws. We are. So we're going to we're going to respect the Supreme Court's decision. Even though I disagree with it, we're going to respect it. That doesn't mean employers can't mandate vaccines, by the way. It just means they can't cite OSHA regulations as the reason for that. But the pandemic itself, beyond just the vaccine, has caused a number of significant changes in our daily lives and in our society, in the world. So we, we've kind of, we're kind of facing a new landscape that's been changed by the pandemic. And in order for us to figure out how we can move forward effectively with both policies, whether it's through legislation by elected leaders 
or just decisions that communities and states and countries need to make. We've got to figure out you know, exactly what has happened because that's still an ongoing process. We're still processing all the changes that we're seeing in the world around us as they happen in real time. And that's a very difficult thing to do. It's very difficult. And because there are so many changes happening so quickly, it's, it creates a confusing atmosphere. It's a confusing landscape out there. It really is. It's, it's bewildering. And so when people get confused or they get bewildered, it's very easy to look to voices who give them easy answers, even though those easy answers are wrong. And unfortunately, I think that's what's driving a lot of the misinformation, especially here in the United States. That's what's driving the misinformation. Um, the critics will, will claim that it's just ignorance, and, and there is an education component to it. But rather than, than being than coming across as condescending, I think we should recognize that we, we live in sort of very bewildering times, and folks are looking for the, the, the best answer they can find, or in some cases the easiest answer they can find, even though that easy answer is wrong. And so our job, and that's one of the goals of this show, by the way, is to provide folks with the correct answers, even though they may not sound as easy as some of the sound bites that are given out there. That's something we have to try to fight. We have to try to battle the misinformation virus at the same time we're battling the coronavirus. So while the pandemic has caused widespread upheaval in the economy, we sort of have at least some idea of the impact and the scope of that upheaval. We know that this caused widespread unemployment. We know that it's causing and still causing today a, a widespread what what some economists are currently called the great resignation, which may actually just be early retirement on the part of folks close to the retirement age and a reshuffling of folks who just want to get uh, different jobs who found themselves reevaluating their, their life priorities uh, in the midst of the pandemic. And some companies that are embracing uh, new technology and others who have gone out and become entrepreneurs. And by the way, I want to mention We'll do shows on those topics, especially on entrepreneurship and on the impact of uh, technology in the pandemic economy. We'll do separate shows on those a little bit later in the year. Well, and so while we have seen massive impact on our economy from the pandemic, the impact on our political system has been nearly as great, if not even more severe. I don't. I think it would be a mistake. I don't think, and I think it would be a mistake to say the pandemic caused political divisions or animosity, those were, were already existing well before COVID came online. But what the pandemic and the conditions that it cultivated did do is it intensified already existing divisions. And, and so it, it made sort of a bad situation worse. And the situation was the United States has been suffering from something that our founders identified at the outset of the Republic. It's not a new phenomenon. I know recently there's a, temp, a ten, tendency for commentators to use the um, the buzzwords that they like to get attention. They'll they'll call someone a communist or a fascist, and and they do that because they know it's a guaranteed way to get under their opponent's skin. It's a guaranteed way to get attention, and so it's a win-win for the folks that are making those kinds of accusations. They get attention and they get to really get under the skin of their opponents, so they they have no choice but to to respond. Um, so that's, I think it's a marketing strategy more than it is really a political analysis. But the actual problem is much older, much older than, than either communism or fascism. It predates those by centuries. And, and the proof is easy to see if you read James Madison's Federalist Number 10, which is the most widely cited of all the Federalist papers. Um, number 10 is probably the most widely known, but I think it's the most important. 
and here's why. I'm going to quote just a couple of brief sections from that because it's it's really worthwhile and it really contributes a lot to our understanding of how the pandemic has intensified political divisions within the country. So here here's the opening from Federalist Number 10, and I quote, Among the numerous advantages promised by a well-constructed union, none deserves to be more accurately developed than its tendency to break and control the violence of faction. The friend of popular governments never finds himself so, so much alarmed for their character and fate as when he contemplates their propensity to this dangerous vice. The instability, injustice, and confusion introduced into the public councils have, in truth, been the mortal diseases under which popular governments have everywhere perished. So what does he mean by faction? Well, James Madison went on to explain, quote, By a faction, I understand a number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or a minority, of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest, adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community, end quote. So in other words, what James Madison was saying in Federalist Number 10 is that ever since human beings have gathered together, you can go back as far as time records and then probably beyond, there has always been the danger of those groups being broken up or splintered by factions. And I think the wording that he chose to explain what factions are is important because he explained very well, I think, that factions are united and actuated by a common impulse of passion or interest. Those, those are, that's a significant description. It doesn't mean that the... It doesn't mean that factions are motivated by facts. It doesn't mean that they're motivated by things that are real. It doesn't mean that they're motivated by honest concerns or genuine threats to their well-being or security. To the contrary, impulse of passion suggests exactly that. People get worked up over things that may not even be a real threat, that may not even be a genuine concern, that may not even be an honest interest. But passion overcomes all of that. So factions are first and foremost driven by emotion, not logic, not reason, and not facts. And the founders understood that. They understood that people sometimes, when living together in groups in a society, will get worked up over something that may in fact not even be a genuine problem. But their response to it is a genuine problem. And so I think we see that. We've, we were seeing that long before the pandemic came along. Long before COVID showed up, the danger of faction had already begun disfiguring the landscape of American politics. And it's been going on for quite some time. And so when you add to that widespread unemployment, when you add to that a prolonged period of lockdown, restricted travel, when you add to that of deadly disease, even though most people I understand recover from it, but there's still the possibility that contracting it can be lead to severe illness or death. When you put all of those things together, it acts as an accelerant. So in other words, COVID just poured fuel on the fire. And as a result, we saw the conflagration spread across the country in 2020. 
culminating with the Capitol attack on 1-6 of 2021. So COVID intensified and exacerbated underlying political problems. The dangers of faction have been around for centuries, as long as there have been people. And, and as Federalist Number 10 goes on to explain, there's really no way to eliminate the danger of factions. You can't take away the causes and you can't control the effects. In order to do that, you would have to either have absolute security or you would have to have citizens who, who weren't even individuals anymore. They were part of some kind of hive mind. So it's not possible to have a free society that doesn't have the dangers of factions. So we know we can't get rid of them and we know we can't stop them. All we can do is try to manage the effects and minimize the damage. That's really all you can do. And that's essentially what the Federalist concludes in the end. We can't get rid of them. We can't completely ever eradicate the, the threat of factions. We just try to mitigate it. One difference today in when the Federalist was written, towards the end, uh, James Madison mentions that, in his view, the good news was factions tend to be localized. In other words, a faction that springs up in one town or even one state, and he wrote this towards the end, does not tend to spread towards the rest of the body of the republic. Well, in the time when he wrote that, that was very true, because in part because of the way information moved, it moved at the it moved at the horse and carriage speed at the or at the printed on the printed page, which had to be carried by a horse and carriage. So it moved very slowly. In other words, the slow spread of information helped mitigate the spread. It helped stop the spread. Factions didn't spread as quickly. Well, today we have instant spread of information. And so we find that the causes of faction have in fact spread to many different states and to larger parts of the body of the Republic. Not the entire body, but to large parts of it. So that means the challenge of factions that we face today is even more intense, is even more difficult to overcome than it has been in times past by virtue of the nature of modern life with respect to how information is spread and how quickly we can communicate. That enables impulses of passion to gain more members in more locations more quickly. And so that makes factions larger and that gives them more power. It gives them more influence. And we see today that there are a number of factions in the country who want what they want and to heck with everybody else. Uh, you're going to give me what we, we're going to, you're going to give us what we demand, or we're not going to work with you anymore. Or, or worse, in case, some case of the, the fringe groups or the extremist groups, you're going to give us what we want, or it's going to be civil war. And that's the kind of rhetoric that they use. Now, up until 2021, that was all just talk. But given the amount of violence that was taking place in the country in 2020, whether it was protests in the cities or whether it was the attack on the Capitol, folks began to see those types of statements and that kind of rhetoric as, as much more realistic because we're seeing an actual increase in physical violence go along with it. And that is also being fed by a confluence of rivers of faction coming together. And it's doing a lot of damage to the country. The folks who are part of the factions sometimes do have legitimate problems that they're trying to solve or trying to address. The social justice protests in the summer of 2020 were based on legitimate grievances and legitimate concerns. And I think if you ask folks who took part in the lawful demonstrations 
for social justice, they will tell you that they absolutely do not approve of and condemn the physical destruction of property and the violence that went along with those protests. So there was groups in there who wanted to break property, cause damage, and there's others who just wanted to peacefully protest. Now, the same thing to a lesser degree, but the same thing can be said of the one-sixth attack on the Capitol. The people who broke into the Capitol trying to stop the certification of the lawful and legitimate 2020 election absolutely committed crimes. They absolutely committed an attack on the country. The folks outside who were just carrying signs or shouting slogans from the street, that's all First Amendment protected. They didn't break any laws. I may not agree. In fact, I don't agree with what they were saying, but I respect and, and support their right to say it. So they didn't break any laws. They didn't commit any crimes. They didn't commit treason. They didn't commit an insurrection. They just protested. The folks who actually physically broke into the Capitol, those are the ones that are being prosecuted, and deservedly so. Deservedly so, because they did commit an attack. But what happens with factions is we have a tendency to label everyone with the same brush. And so we, we lose sight of individuality and we allow the passions to overwhelm reason and logic. And so that's why, as I'll get to in a little bit, I think that, that, our, that our top priorities have to be based on our approach to how we communicate, how we behave, and how we interact with not just members of our own faction, but members of other factions as well, because that's what's really driving the increased and intensifying rhetoric, the increased and intensifying acts of violence, and the increasing threat to the stability and security of the country in the short term and to its very existence in the long term. The possibility for democracies to destroy themselves, or republics to destroy themselves, has been ever-present, and that's what James Madison was referring to when he said that let me find the quote again here. I lost it. The factions have been the mortal diseases under which popular governments everywhere have perished. And that's true. It doesn't matter if you study Greek history or Roman history. Take your pick, but you'll find that rampaging mobs tearing through the street, destroying property, or attacking elected officials and, and murdering them, well, once you get to that point, you're at, a, you're at the point where things can, can come to an end, where that system of government could perish. It doesn't mean it automatically will, but it could. So that threat is real. The founders knew that, but the threat came from factions and the overreactions that they have to whatever that they're, whatever it is that they're worked up about, or the opportunism of some who really don't even care about the underlying issues, but who just want to engage in wanton, wanton violence and destruction. And we've seen that too. So the pandemic has intensified the threat posed by factions. So as we look out there in 2022, what's our, what's our top goal? What's our top objective? And I'm talking about here, here in the United States and, and in Kentucky. You know, Kentucky, with, with the start of this new year here in 2022, we've already been through quite a bit. We've had massive tornadoes in the West. We've had floods in the East. We've had snowstorms, a resurgent pandemic. All of this is happening during which time we're going to have to have another national election. So it almost seems like, you know, 2022 is, is just a continuation of, of the past two years. Um, it does. It feels that way. But when we, look at our, when we look at goals and what we want to accomplish for this year, you know, there's, there's an old saying, you can't stick your hand into a boiling pot. You have to turn the temperature down. 
And so with respect to the elections, I would think our top goal this year, our top civic goal, is to treat each other with, is to do a better job of treating each other with civility and respect. I'm not suggesting that we hold hands and sing Kumbaya. I'm not saying that. We're going to continue to have disagreements and heated debates in public. That's fine. We're, we need to do that. But the first thing we should do, and the biggest goal I think we should strive for, is to treat each other with respect and civility. Whether you're members of a different party, the same party, whether you don't even affiliate with the party, whether you're a devout religious believer, whether you don't subscribe to any religion, it doesn't matter all those things uh, that, that, that distinguish us. We have a common interest in trying to help each other through this very difficult time. It's true that everybody has been facing different types of challenges and to different degrees. But it's tough to find anyone that hasn't been affected by the past couple of years. It hasn't struggled or hasn't at times struggled. I know that there's a handful who have profited handsomely. We'll get to that in a, in a little bit when it comes to the outcome of the pandemic economy and what we should do about it. We're going to get to that. I understand that. But first and foremost, Let's do a better job of treating each other with civility and respect. Because you're going to hear almost immediately when the 2000, and it's already underway, the voices that want to be the most outrageous or the most insulting or the most extreme or the most shrill are already fighting to, keep dom to dominate our attention or at least to dominate media coverage of the 2022 elections. Now that's always been a feature of American politics. The most extreme or the most outrageous has always been fighting for a place and sometimes it, it, it wins. But over the past couple of years it's really grown and it's really gotten out of hand and I, and I think that the vast majority of people are tired of it. They're tired of listening to it, they're tired of hearing about it, and they're tired of having their daily lives affected by it. I think that's the most important part. So that's number one. Number two, manage expectations. Manage expectations. What does that mean? Set realistic goals. Set realistic goals. The new administration that just came in this year made a lot of promises about the coronavirus. They did not do a good job of managing their expectations, and that's putting it mildly. Because a pandemic itself is a combination of unknowns. There's the unknown virus itself, which we're still trying to learn about. There's how fast is it spread. There's all these impacts that I've just briefly touched on that are still going on that we're still in the middle of. So let's set reasonable goals. Let's manage our expectations. That's the second thing. And the third thing is, let's remember, you matter. Your opinion matters. Your voice matters. Your actions matter. Your decisions affect others. No one is an island. Everyone's vote not only counts, but as we go through our daily lives, whether it's at work or with our family and friends, the actions we take, the decisions we make, and the things we say have an impact on others. So remember that the individual matters. We seem to be losing that. And we're losing it for a lot of reasons. Some of the reasons are, as I mentioned earlier, there's a tendency to paint entire groups of people with this broad brush, almost to say that they're not even people anymore. Well, they are. Even in, in and I remember on deployment, when you're when you're dealing with with extreme groups as extreme as as terrorist organizations, yes, there are enemies. Yes, we want to defeat them, but they're still people. They're still human beings, and you have to analyze them as such. So, we're not enemies here in the United States. We're not. We're we have political opponents, we have adversaries, but there's a huge difference between enemies 
and opponents. And let's remember that. We're not enemies. We're opponents. In an election year, we're going to be we're opponents, and there's going to be things that we disagree on. And the easiest example, there's there's a couple of examples I wanted to get to, but what the one I'll start with is one that's both local here to the state of Kentucky and a part of a broad a broader nationwide trend. There is in the working its way through the Kentucky legislature right now what is currently called Bill Request 60. And the opening of that piece of proposed legislation states, quote, an act relating to a crisis in education. Well, I certainly agree with the authors of the bill. There's plenty of crisis going on in the education sector in this country. Unfortunately, that piece of legislation doesn't address any of them. What it does do is create a legal form of what it does do it creates censorship it's a censorship bill that's what it is it shouldn't be called an education bill because it's not it's a censorship bill and the purpose is to prevent teachers from either speaking about or using instructional materials that refer to concepts that the legislation designates and i'll give you a, a real easy quick example there's a list of 12 things that it excludes 12 ideas here's the first one quote that no race or sex you cannot include or promote material that Promote that this states the idea that one race or sex is superior to another race or sex, end quote. Well, no one would want to promote that. I know Democrats don't want to promote that. Republicans don't want to promote that. Kentuckians don't want to promote that, with the exception of a very few fringe groups out there who, who do think that, that their race is superior. That's not mainstream at all. The vast, overwhelming majority of people in this state and in the country do not want to promote that. That's not where the legislation gets into trouble. Problem is... It states you may not include material that covers that concept. Well, then you can't teach the Second World War. You can't teach the Civil War. You basically can't teach history. And, and a lot of literature is going to be out the window if that legislation became law. I hope that folks here in the state of Kentucky will, will organize against that and demonstrate against that and, and contact their legislators and put public pressure on them to vote against it. It's, it violates the First Amendment. And, and I'm sure the... The folks who authored the bill and support it will say, well, what about the Garcetti case in 2006? For those who don't know, the Supreme Court ruled in 2006 that public sector employees in the discharge of their duties are not entitled to First Amendment protection. So it appears that the authors of this bill think that's the case here. However, if you read the majority opinion written by Justice Anthony Kennedy of the Garcetti case, there is an exception to this ruling carved out for education and scholarship. So it is not clear at all that that precedent would allow this law to stand in the face of a First Amendment challenge. And if it ever does become law, I hope that the court system will invalidate it because it certainly violates the First Amendment. It certainly violates free expression, not just uh, in the classroom, but, you know, threat to liberty anywhere is a threat to liberty everywhere. And so if we, if we can start banning this stuff in the classroom, what's next? In America, we've had a long history of, of trying to ban literature or books that we don't like, and this is just the latest example. And it's a, but it's a perfect example of, of what James Madison called the danger of factions. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I understand that there's a lot of folks out there who have strong feelings about the topic of critical race theory, which is what this bill purports to ban, even though it doesn't use the term. Nowhere in, in, in Bill Request 60 here in Kentucky, the phrase critical race theory doesn't appear anywhere in that. But that's what they're that's what they're trying to ban. Really, they're trying to ban what they think critical race theory is, even though based on the wording of the legislation, they really don't have much of an idea. It's a postgraduate level theory. It isn't taught in Kentucky classrooms. 
it hasn't been taught in Kentucky classrooms and there are no plans to teach it in Kentucky classrooms. So it's really an unnecessary piece of legislation. And if that were all, were all it was, I wouldn't even be mentioning it. But because it's so broad, because it broadens, the, the language is so vague and so broad, it could be interpreted as to, to be used to exclude things like the Second World War, the Civil War, and lots of works of literature. It could. And so on, on those grounds, I hope they would oppose it. But but going back to the, the Federalist Number 10, which was written by James Madison, you know, he, he explained that a, that a faction is, you know, a, a group of citizens that were actuated by some common impulse or passion. Well, that's clearly the case here. That's clearly the case. I don't think, I really don't, I just, I guess I just have more faith in humanity than this, but I don't think that the authors of, of Bill Request 60 here in Kentucky really want to ban literature or history. I don't think that. I don't think they want to ban the teaching uh, of World War II. I don't think they want to ban teaching uh, of the Civil War. I don't think that. But I do think they've allowed themselves to be persuaded that they can gain popularity with a certain faction of the voters by offering this legislation. Voters who themselves have been sort of whipped up into a frenzy over nothing, and now the legislators see an opportunity to capitalize on that. So I, think they, I do think they're guilty of putting their own political expediency ahead of the long-term interests of the state of Kentucky. I don't think that they really want to ban history or literature, even though even though that's what the law would do. So, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So even if I assume they have good intentions, and I don't know what goes on in the mind of another person, I'm not going to try to guess. I don't have to. I can just read the language of the bill. And the language of the bill would exclude a lot more than just critical race theory. And so that's why we should oppose. But that's not limited to the state of Kentucky. Tennessee's doing it, or offering similar legislation. Indiana, our neighbors, Indiana is doing it. And in over 20 states nationwide, similar legislation is working its way through state houses. And, and this is precisely what James Madison meant by the danger of faction that this impulse of passion will lead us to create legislation that has unintended consequences down the road that cause problems we didn't want. And this is, is certainly an example of that. And so, in, in the heated atmosphere and in the turmoil of the pandemic era, you know, the education system itself has become another one of those focus points where, where parents have been either told or, or misinformed that their schools are, are teaching critical race theory, which in, in almost every case is not the case, certainly not the case here in Kentucky. I can't speak for every other state, although it, it's, it would be strange for me to, to understand how secondary school, which is you know elementary, middle, or high school, how they could ever teach a postgraduate theory to students who are not even in college yet. That, that's sort of a strange thing. So they're, they're, they're worked up about this, and, and they're entitled to their opinion. By the way, in an absolute sense, if they want to oppose critical race theory, that's fine. Don't have an issue with that. They want to say it's wrong, that's fine. I don't have an issue with that either. But the problem is we, we've, we've taken that passion and we've turned it towards creating legislation that itself would be detrimental to the country, not just the, the Kentucky law would be detrimental to students here, but the, the cumulative effect of all these states passing this legislation would be devastating on the future, future, the education of future generations. Now, I understand, you know, fortunately, we live in a world where just because you can't read a book in the classroom doesn't mean you don't have access to it. I mean, students can go online, they can pull out their smartphone and probably read anything they want about critical race theory. I get that. But the message that sends that it's that it's forbidden. It's a forbidden topic to be taught in the classroom. Will certainly influence thinking about that topic amongst not only students but the population writ, writ large.
So that's one of the issues that's out there as we look at the landscape of 2022 that I hope citizens will educate themselves on and speak out against. Because it really is, the government can only do, state or federal, can only do what we allow them to do. Can only do what we allow them to do. So if we allow them to pass legislation like this, they will. And we'll have to suffer the consequences of it. And that's just one example. Another thing that's very important, and if you would pull this up to the national level, the infrastructure bill, the, the Build Back Better bill, you know, it's absolutely critical. That, that legislation, or parts of it at least, are critical for the country's future. However, you have to actually read the bill itself. You know, the devil is always in the details. You know, there's no question that we need infrastructure, an infrastructure bill and infrastructure spending to upgrade the power grid, to prepare the country to, to face the, increase, the increasing effects of climate change. There's no doubt about that. But if you read what's actually in the bill, you know, you can understand why there's so much opposition to it. Let me just give you one, just one example. I mean, there, there's a $2.5 billion handout. Literally, that's what it is, a handout to trial lawyers. That's in there. What does that have to do with building back infrastructure? Nothing. So, you know, it's, it's like you're handing your opponents ammunition to shoot you with when you put things like that in the legislation. So, you know, as a Democrat, am I frustrated with Joe Manchin? You bet I am. But I'm more frustrated with the people who wrote this bill and put so much junk in it that it made it easy for those who want to oppose it to do so and actually sound credible. You know, we need to, to take the junk out of that, that piece of legislation and focus on the core of the actual the actual objective. There's no question that we need improvements in the infrastructure, and Kentucky especially is one of the states that would stand to benefit from, in, from increased investment in infrastructure. And there are many states across the country that are in a similar situation. But we've made it easy for the opposition to say no by loading it up with stuff that either isn't related to the core objective or is just an outright handout. Now, Democrats are not the only ones that do this. Republicans do it too, consistently. They'll offer legislation and put things in there that have nothing to do with it, that it just amounts to a handout. But how are we going to criticize, how can Democrats criticize Republicans for doing that when we're doing the same thing in this piece of legislation? So I would encourage folks out there, citizens out there, and members of the Democratic Party to, to contact their representative, especially their congressional, and emphasize the point to them that, that we need to get legislation like this passed, so stop loading it up with wasteful spending. That makes it harder to pass. Stop loading it up with things like a handout to trial lawyers, which has absolutely nothing to do with an infrastructure bill, or the infrastructure itself, and that would give us a better chance of passing this much, much needed legislation. Because we do, we need that. That's something that in 2022 is going to be front and center. It'll have an impact on the election. But the need for infrastructure improvement is not going to go away, even if the bill ultimately fails and doesn't pass, which right now that's, that looks like the way it's going to be. There's still going to be a need out there that hasn't been met. And so how are we going to deal with that? It goes to the entire question of what is our government really for? It's a fundamental question. And it's one that remains open to every generation of citizens to answer for themselves. There's no answer that every generation will agree on. You know, there, there's two types of goods. There's private sector goods and there's public sector goods. Private sector goods are things that people buy and sell. They're services or, or products that people buy. And that's done for profit, which is fine. Public sector goods include things like security 
and infrastructure. And you cannot run the government in such a way that you try to make a profit the way the private sector does. It doesn't work that way. Private sector goods cost money. They don't make money. But they are vital to the private sector economy. You cannot have goods and services sold in a private sector if you don't have roads for transportation, if you don't have a power grid, if you don't have telephone or internet or airports. All of those infrastructure components that you need to move goods and services around depend on public sector goods. So that's why rebuilding infrastructure is so important. It doesn't mean that it wasn't built well in the past. It simply means that over time we have to do maintenance especially on things like roads and bridges. They're out there exposed to the elements 24-7, 365. So over time, all structures that we built are going to be weakened or eroded, and we have to repair them. We have to. It's just part of the upkeep of already existing infrastructure. And then with the growth of the economy into new sectors, with new technology, we have to provide for not only more people, but more goods and services to be moved around. So there's no question there's a need for infrastructure improvement and there's a need for an infrastructure bill. That shouldn't even be open to debate. But what is open to debate is what we put in that legislation. So please, please, folks in the Democratic Party who, who want this to pass, as I do, contact your congressional and get them to take get rid of the junk in this bill so we can focus on what's needed and what's necessary and what's vital, not just today, but for the next generation and for the future of the country. Because spending at the federal level remains an enormously important issue that's going to impact the lives not only of Americans today, but of future generations. And guess what? We've had, we've had a lot of debate on the, the infrastructure bill, but at the same time, we've had almost no debate on the defense bill. And guess what? We left Afghanistan this year, and that withdrawal, as I said in a previous show, was, was very ugly and, and was beneath the standards that we had. It was far below the expectations that I had, and I think most people had. For, this, for the new administration. But the fact is, we, we're gone. We left Afghanistan, and yet, at the same time, defense spending went up, and correspondingly, there was a surprising absence of debate. There was almost no discussion on the defense bill, and yet we're spending even more on defense today than we were last year, even though we left Afghanistan. And the public, understandably, in some ways, we have a lot on our plate, we do, and, and so do legislators. But the fact that we increase defense spending after leaving Afghanistan should make you scratch your head. It really should. It should make you scratch your head and say, why? Not only are we paying more for defense than we were last year, but why is no, was nobody talking about it? It didn't get any attention. And in fact, the, the major political parties, the Democratic and Republican, pretty much passed it without, much of a, without so much as raising an eyebrow for the most part. In terms of the, the level of national attention it received or, or national debate, it was, it was an afterthought. We're going to increase the defense bill, and it, it doesn't even merit attention. So if, if what that does is it tells you if, if spending is really a concern, then how do you explain increasing the defense budget after we just left Afghanistan? It tells you that, that really folks in Washington are okay with spending as long as it's on things that they want or things that benefit their specific districts. There's nothing wrong as long as it's transparent, debated, and supported by the majority. There's nothing wrong with spending that benefits locations throughout the country. However, when it's on things that we don't need and are things that are wasteful or things that are unnecessary, 
then it becomes wasteful spending. And there are plenty of examples of that in the defense budget. Almost every veteran out there, myself included, will tell you that the, the Pentagon, when it comes to fraud, waste, and abuse, there, there's probably no other place on earth that reaches level, the level that the Pentagon reaches. It's, it's just absolutely astounding, astonishing. You wouldn't believe the amount of money that is wasted or can't be accounted for. And yet every year, despite that fact, without fixing that problem, which could be fixed, by the way, we could fix that. It, it is fixable. But we don't. We just continue to throw good money after bad. And it's not hard to guess why. There's a lot of reasons, aside from the benefits that folks get in their congressional district from defense sector jobs, which are taken straight from the defense budget. So we're paying contractors from the defense budget. So by passing that, we're essentially passing a jobs bill, or if you want to be more cynical, a welfare bill, just call it a defense bill by another name, but that's still the effect of it. That's what it's doing. And that hasn't even been talked about. So my hope is that 2022, that issue will get the attention that it deserves. I understand that a lot of folks are concerned about the situation in Ukraine, the situation in the Pacific, that just because we left Afghanistan doesn't mean that there aren't legitimate threats to United States security or interests out there that we need to be aware of. There are. But are there threats to our interests and security out there that justify the level of spending that we're currently engaged in, that we just passed? Does it really justify that level of spending? You know, look at the situation in, in Ukraine. Russia has been conducting troop buildups along the Ukrainian border for a long time. It doesn't mean they're going to invade. They could. It's certainly a possibility. But it's not probable. And the reason is because Russia doesn't stand to gain from that action as much as they could from simply showing up on the border in large numbers and all of a sudden we come running to the negotiating table, which we have. The story is often about, oh, the negotiations are stalled, we're not making any headway. That's not the objective from, from the, the Russian perspective, from, from President Putin's perspective. His gain is that we showed up to negotiate, all of a sudden concerned. He got us there just by moving his troops in his territory. So that's one of the things we need to think about. The same thing, the same logic applies to the situation in China. I understand that we want to support our friends in Taiwan. However, there's not much that we can do to change the geography of that country. And as the saying goes, geography is destiny. You're right off the coast of China. You're, you're thousands of miles away from the United States. So the amount that we're going to be able to do directly to ever affect the outcome of a potential military confrontation between Taiwan and China is limited. It's very limited. It's possible we might not be able to change the outcome at all because they're so close to China and we're so far away. You know, the, the saying goes in the military, amateur study tactics, professional study logistics. Well, our logistics supply line is, is 5,000 miles long. China's is less than 100. That's a huge tactical advantage. Not to mention, the Chinese government knows that they have plenty to gain from flexing their muscle and threatening Taiwan, which they have. They've openly threatened Taiwan, and I think that's and I think that our government has been right in offering a forceful response to that. But at the same time, we need to be honest with ourselves and with the American public that when it comes down to it, when push comes to shove, there's not a lot we're going to be able to do in an actual war 
should should Taiwan and China ever go to war? And that, by the way, is another thing that doesn't seem likely because China can get what it wants just by threats instead of actually undertaking an invasion. So it's, what I'm saying is it's very easy to look at places in the world like Ukraine or Taiwan and to look at countries like China and Russia, which are considered to be potential adversaries, and they are. It's easy to see that and it's easy to use what they're doing to justify enormous defense expenditures. But in this case, we really need to ask ourselves in 2022 if it's justified. Well, I'll do a separate show on this. It's a separate topic. But I think when you drill down to it, it really is not justified. And I'll, I'll put together the enough evidence and enough supporting data to justify that stance in a later show. But be thinking about that because the defense issue is a large one in 2022 simply by virtue of the enormous expenditure that we're making in our, our federal government. The defense budget is huge. It's going up. And we can't ignore that, especially if we want to spend more things, spend more on things like infrastructure. But finally, you know, kind of above all for 2022, I think the, the biggest issue, and this goes back to the, the first goal that I said, treating each other with civility and respect. And I said that because there's being, there's being a loss of trust, sort of an erosion of trust in the legitimacy of democratic elections and in the outcomes of democratic elections. So now you've got both major political parties consistently accusing the other of, of trying to rig the game or to cheat. And this is a, a very old story, um, in, in especially just here in the United States. It's, it's been around since, since our republic was founded. Since, since its founding, you know, state legislators have tried to draw the lines of congressional districts in a way that will benefit their particular interest group or their particular party. There have been attempts to change the rules of elections such that they think it will benefit one faction or another. Again, there's, there's James Madison warning us about the dangers of factions. Again, this is a very old and ongoing effort. I don't think it'll ever really stop. But it's, it's reached dangerous levels today because it's being embraced by larger amounts, larger numbers of the public and larger numbers of voters are starting to think that either their vote doesn't count, so I'm just going to tune out, or that whatever the outcome, whatever vote count comes out, it, it shouldn't shouldn't be trusted. That somehow that it was that there was a cheat, that it was cheated, or, or that that it was rigged, or that it was, which didn't happen, by the way. And that all really came to a head in 2020. It's not the first time, however, that but we've had a dispute of a, of a major national election. You know, think back to 2000 when it was the Democrats who were disputing the outcome of a presidential election when. Then President George W. Bush won a narrow victory based on, at the end, a Supreme Court ruling about voting machines in Florida, which a lot of Democrats at the time felt that they were the ones that were being wronged by the election system and by the process. The difference, though, is that the, the Democratic nominee for president at that time, Al Gore, admitted that he lost. He admitted that, that this was the decision of the voters, this was the outcome of our process, and we have to respect it. When he did that, that ended the Democratic argument against the election outcome, and George, Bush became pre George W. Bush became president. So because the nominee admitted defeat, that put an end to, at least, for the, at, least at the moment, that put an end to the, the discussion about the election being illegitimate. Unfortunately, in 2020, the losing candidate did not do that. They did not accept the defeat. They did not accept the outcome of the system. And as far as I can tell, still haven't. But the outcome is really not in doubt. 
the popular vote was won by Biden by over 7 million votes. There were 60, I think 61 court challenges, all of which were rejected as baseless. And that some of those by judges appointed by the former president himself. Every single, all 50 state legislatures certified their votes. And despite an attack on the Capitol on the 6th, Congress certified the results. So that was the outcome. But it's dangerous when we have a growing numbers of the population who don't believe that elections are legitimate or the outcomes of the elections are legitimate. And, you know, democracy is a frustrating thing. Winston Churchill once said, and I'm just quoting him here, he said, quote, democracy is the worst form of government there is, except for all the others. So that means it may be bad, but it's still better than all other systems of government. But it's frustrating because a lot of times you don't get what you want. And, and really, this is the essence of a democratic society, is that the losing faction accepts their loss, their election loss. They don't have to give up on their issues or whatever it is they're trying to accomplish, but they accept the outcome of the elections peacefully. And that is an American tradition. There have always been violent uprisings, violent protests or riots surrounding issues that are important to elections. But there has been, at least until 2020, a peaceful transition of power when it comes to the new administration coming in. And our challenge now is to decide whether or not we still believe in that peaceful transition of power, which I do, and I hope you do too. And we have to dedicate ourselves to restoring that as the standard. And you have to start by accepting the legitimacy of the election outcomes, even if you lose. So I'll say that now at the beginning of this is January of 2020, I'm a Democrat, but if Republicans win the majority, I'll accept that because that's the outcome. That just means we've got our work cut out for us in 2024 because there's going to be, and that's the key, there's going to be another election. The Constitution requires federal elections for federal office, at least for Congress, every two years, president every four years, Senate they serve six-year terms. So elections are a constant feature of our life, and for good reason, for that very reason. So that folks who lost one outcome, they lost one cycle, will have a chance to try again in the next election cycle. And so we somehow seem to have gotten to a point where we think that one election outcome is the end, is the end-all, be-all of everything. And I think in that sense, we're sort of falling for our own rhetoric. Now, we do have to keep a close eye on pieces of legislation that are designed specifically to help one party win an election. And they're out there. Georgia's a good example. Since 2020, there are others. And, and people are absolutely right to speak out and oppose those. But it's always been a feature of American political life. And we need to remember that. And we need to remember that the outcome of the result, the, the results rather, are legitimate. The system is so big there are so many moving parts, it's literally not possible for one candidate to rig the whole thing. It can't be done. Is it theoretically possible that one party could, over time, pass enough legislation that gave them an advantage? Absolutely. That's possible. And that I would, we can argue that that has already happened in American history and that it's in the process of trying to happen again. That doesn't mean we should give up on electoral democracy. That simply means we as citizens have a lot more work to do. 
we have to pay closer attention, not just to national level elections, but also local and state elections as well, because that's where a lot of this legislation is coming from. It's being introduced at the state level. So we can't forget about that. And unfortunately, if national elections suffer from attention deficit, state and local elections are even less well attended. They get even less attention. So that's on us as citizens to continue to do that. But the, the future depends on us accepting the outcome of elections, even if we lose. That is the standard. That is our obligation. That's the American way. And those who won't accept the outcome of a, of a fair election, like the one in 2020, are violating not just American history, they're also trampling on America's most sacred ideals. Whether they know it or not, it doesn't matter. I don't care. If they're doing it just to make money, I don't care about that either. They're still violating American tradition. They're still engaging in un-American activities because we accept the outcome of our elections. And so that's the challenge for us in 2020. And the reason, and that's another reason why treating each other with respect and civility is so important. Because we, we fight a hard fight during the election, and then once the results are counted, we shake hands and say, better luck, you know, we congratulate the winner and say, better luck next time to the loser. Just like in sporting events that, that a lot of us were taught, or, or we have kids who, who play sports. You play hard till the buzzer sounds, then you shake hands, congratulate the winner, Tell the loser, better luck next time. And if you're the person that lost, then you got work to do before the next contest. So I hope that that's what we will get to in 2022. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be obstacles. There's going to be interests in individuals who don't want us to get to that point. There's interests in individuals who don't want us to be civil and, and respectful to each other because they make a living being uncivil and disrespectful. They make a living on insults. We need to take the oxygen away from them. We need to take the wind out of their sails so that they will have a smaller share of the attention pie when it comes to our national discourse. And I think we can do it. I know we can do it. But we have to focus. We have to work together. We have to make that our goal. And we have to be diligent throughout the year, throughout 2022, in order to achieve it. So I thank you for your attention. I thank you for listening. I look forward to hearing from you. I would love to hear from you either on, either by message or on Facebook. Let me know what you think. What are other issues out there that we need to talk about or that need to be addressed throughout 2022 as we go through this election year? And I look forward to hearing those questions and answering them. Have a great day. Thank you very much for listening.